What's up, headbangers? Welcome to another episode of the Talk Louder podcast, where we geek out on all things rock and roll. Hit that subscribe button on our YouTube channel. Leave us your likes and comments. Follow us on iTunes, Spotify, Instagram at TalkLouder underscore podcast. And of course, our website, TalkLouderPodcast.com, where you'll find links to our merch and all of our previous episodes. I'm Metal Dave Glessner, along with my co-host, Jason McMaster. And today we've got a guy who is a walking encyclopedia of hard rock, heavy metal. Uh, he's got a career to back it up. He's worked at Metal Blade Records. He's worked at Capitol Records. He's worked at knac.com. He's a DJ. He's an A&R guy. He's a champion of heavy metal. DJ Will Howell is on. Came on my radar, Mr. William Howell, before there was a DJ in front of his name. Yeah. Um, I think I used to see his name in the special thanks on a lot of the records I was buying when I was in high school or right after that. Uh, That's your first mid, clue, right? Mid, mid 80s, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. Probably more Metal Blade record uh, releases than than other labels, but I'm sure I read his name in, in other uh, capacities, probably even in special thanks and some demo tapes I had gotten. Um, no surprise, he's a big part of the tape trading uh, mm -hmm. in the underground. Um, the stories that he tells today about him, you know, well, who's this guy? And that guy he would be keep seeing at all the local metal shows was one Brian Slagle, the uh, owner and king of Metal Blade Records. Um, it, I I can't I can't recall how me and Will started like. Uh, fraternizing, talking on the phone or, or whatever. But I, I, I do have memory of going to Metal Blade Records when he was there as late as 86 or 87. And then uh, my departure of what it was in, in question of Watchtower being on Metal Blade in some capacity. And then when I was not long after I had jump ship so to speak i was making the first recording the first dangerous toys record um just a, a couple of like a year and a half later or something weird like that at sound city and i got to you know hang out in person with the man the myth the legend uh william howell as well and it was really good to sort of hear because we had never really sat down to where I knew his background, where he's, I didn't even know he's from the Midwest. Yeah. So we're going to learn a lot today. I think it was a, a really great uh, episode today, uh, finding out a lot of information about that guy, that DJ Will that you see on that metal show and and uh pretty much everywhere if you go on monsters of rock cruises he's always there if you go to a if you're on the west coast in the u.s and you go to rock shows you're gonna see will there and i'm sure you have um listeners and supporters of the talk louder podcast i present you dj william howell today as our guest <laughs> what is your like background like how do you did you did you what got you into metal what got you into rock music because it just seems like eventually we end up talking about that and this doesn't have to be like a from the beginning type of a conversation we're about to have but 
<laughs> How do you walk into older brothers, friends from school? What is it? What you? What kind of music did you fall in love with? And and uh, get your journey, your music journey started. Whether you wanted to be in a band or play guitar, I think I know that you play guitar a little bit, right? You play guitar a little bit, a little, yeah, a little bit, a little bit. What's, your, what's that your story? Well, I'll just give you the just the basic beats. Um, I'm from the Midwest, and where all that started was the parents, good old mom, who had a lot of records in her collection. So really what it stems from is one day going through her record collection and just flipping through the album covers, not knowing the, the content of what's on there. What really drew my attention, uh, you know, we'll ease into the rock and the metal, but it was the artwork. It was the graphic nature of, well, not graphic as in like horror, blood gore and all that. I'm talking in terms of, the 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 majestic beauty of a lot of these great album covers you know emerson lake and palmer deep purple black sabbath on and on and on so you had led zeppelin of course is in the mix but you had these great album covers with these great logos that just basically drew my attention to them and as i would you know look at them more in depthly and start to read the lyrics and then eventually put them on the play so that's really what it started it started my mom's record collection so were you, were you a teenager yet or were you, is it preteen? No, preteen, preteen. Wow. Okay. You know, young curiosity. And, uh, yeah. you know, that's kind of really where it started. And that got me into the whole, um, aspect of learning more about these really cool looking bands that had something very unique about them. So that's how it started for me. Did you have a record player? What, what age did you get your first record player? <laughs> Man, that had to have been. seven or eight wow okay yeah and i and obviously it was it was pre fisher price record uh player we're talking one of those uh, those big uh con component uh consoles oh like the radio a, like in the living room kind of thing mm -hmm. yeah it was hers it was hers initially you know had the radio stereo record player the, you know with a big dust cover the whole deal so she eventually gave me gave hers uh to me and yeah. i i had that for, for for quite some time nice i love those yeah things, yeah yeah when you initially got hooked on music uh did you have aspirations of being a musician or did you just sort of appreciate the artwork and then maybe listening to the radio you kind of aspire to be a dj were you were you targeting uh being a guy in a band or was it some of the peripheral stuff that sort of appealed to you the band thing was intriguing initially, looking at it as, oh, I want to be up on stage. I want to be a rock star. But that slowly went away because I got more and more focused with going to shows, going to concerts time and time and time again. I'm like, yeah, it's at some point there was that early notion of like, I want to be up there just like uh, these guys as well. But I drifted towards more behind the scenes learning more about all these bands and then that sort of lent its way to um live recordings demo tapes and gradually getting into that world because i found it more intriguing that other people share the same interests 
uh, with me that are on the other side of the planet. And, uh, you know, long before the internet, long before you can send an email, we're talking handwriting letters, putting on stamps and, you know, Hey, send me your list. Uh, this is a band that I followed for quite some time and you have this live recording that I knew nothing about. Can you send me a copy? So that sort of found its way towards the late seven, more early eighties, I should say. But it was more fascinating to learn more about other people's uh, commonality of uh, these these uh, um, you know these rock bands. So I appreciated that. Yeah, you you eventually went on to work for Metal Blade Records and Capitol Records, and mm -hmm. uh, obviously you 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 do DJ work. Did you have any? role models in those capacities like since since you weren't going to be a guitar player you, you know maybe jimmy page wasn't your hero but did you have a dj that was a hero or an a and r guy or somebody that you sort of wanted to model your path after not not necessarily the industry was um it was kind of all-encompassing you know the marketing radio retail the a and r department the promotions department so with Metal Blade, we were really a one-stop shop, and I really owe my my whole career uh, to Brian Slagle. Uh, he was the one that that hired me. You know, right. escape, You know, seeing 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 each other at every single <laughs> rock and metal show, <laughs> and a lot of a lot of instances where it's bands that are on Metal Blade records. You know, I would I would be at those shows. So over a period of time, he just said. You know, what's, what's, what's this kid's deal? I always see him with a skateboard and he's always, always at these rock and metal shows. Let, let's, let's see what he's all about. And then that's, that's really where it, it led itself into my first uh, entrance to the music biz. So starting, starting out small then going to a major, all a learning process, a lot of it on the fly. You know, there was, it was more of passion and energy about underground bands, about music about uh discovery of a lot of hungry bands that haven't yet made it at that point you know the, the mid 80s and whatnot so really uh, as a as a, someone that was influential and that was important to me in my career uh, definitely brian slagle without question the dj stuff came much much later because the dj stuff was a was a component of collecting all these tapes, collecting all these 45s and records over a period of time. And uh, that just became the, I, I call it the heavy metal hoarding process where, <laughs> you know, uh, everything that I've accumulated the last, you know, 35, 36 years, majority of it I still have. So that was a product of, hey, we have this party. Do you want a DJ? So that came probably 20 some years later. But I would say um, it all worked out. Yeah, I, yeah. I think that uh, <clears throat> going back to Slagle, running into him at probably some of the earliest uh, concerts, probably not just in Orange County and LA County. It was probably somewhat just coastal. You know, uh, did you ever travel? As a young teenager, were you traveling in your first car to like the Bay Area to see bands play and shit like that and running into uh, Slagle as well? Well, I'm a majority 
the majority of the time I will run into Brian, you know, locally here in Los Angeles. But yeah. I mean, yeah, of course I did get to travel, you know, take, you know, Greyhound. I mean, this is before I had a license. So oh, a lot shit. of it was, okay. yeah, yeah. So a lot of it was getting on a plane or taking Greyhound or, or catching rides up to the Bay area. And then when we started to work at metal blade, there was, you know, multiple trips to New York, you know, the new music yeah. seminar, CMJ, and then even uh, South by Southwest. Yeah. Old, yeah. Uh, you know, so that was yeah. all of that was, uh, you know, again, all part of the learning experience about what it takes to work with the label and what it takes to sort of, uh, you know, reach out to other people in the business and uh, connect with a lot of bands um, outside of Los Angeles. So, right. oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think I, I think I know the answer to this, but you were aware and a fan of uh, Brian's fanzine, right? Yes, that was one of the earliest fanzines I remember. I mean, yes. obviously outside of um, uh, the Headbanger fanzine, of course, which came a little later. But Brian's new heavy metal review, correct? Um, very early on, with um, reviews of these underground bands and these uh, these bands that I also like. So that's that was also intriguing because I didn't really know much about the label aspect at that time. I there was discussions about. Uh, a label being formed, but this was very, very early on. And he was, uh, you know, he was at the forefront of being a fan and uh, extending what he does as a fan and doing something like uh, a fanzine, getting it out there. And obviously, he didn't have like worldwide distribution, but the important thing is there were write ups about all this, these great bands. And, you know, he was, uh, he was early in on that. I believe I have a couple of uh, issues. No. no more than one or two, but it's very interesting. I also recall seeing just photos in other people's fanzines of Brian, like, you know, uh, of course, you know, awesome heavy metal band T-shirt, but the gauntlets. He'd be good at shows <laughs> and wear the gauntlets. And that yeah. just makes yeah. him like this like he's a mogul but at the same time he back in the day he's pre-metal blade he's this real guy who's going to shows and now i'm picturing you guys chumming it up in the front row at whatever you know yeah malice yeah. or yeah. <laughs> savage grace or yeah. something yeah. like that you know it's pretty it's pretty incredible yeah. um well leather and studs were part of the whole uniform you know you're yeah. wearing you know, you're wearing a, you know, Raven or Tigers of Pantang patch or some type of shirt that like, I was like, who else knows about this band? Mm -hmm. And there's that whole story of how, um, uh, you know, Lars had worn or, or Lars had uh, come to a country club show or a Troubadour show, something like that. He saw another person with a Saxon shirt and then they got to know right. each other. Like, I was like, I was like, who's this guy? How do you know about this band? So it actually right. might have been Brian if I'm not mistaken, that, that actually could have been that, that lineage there. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. Le legendary. Yeah. Legendary yeah. meeting. Yeah. The t-shirts yeah. are, are a calling card, you know, yeah. it's like an invitation. If you see someone across the room and you get it and you guys kind of, you're, you're kinda both aware of the sort same. Of a, sorry to interrupt, like a smoke signal. <laughs> like you're looking across, across the valley and it's like, Holy shit, there's somebody over there. We should probably, you know, send some signals and meet in the middle and go fishing in the valley together and figure this out. You know? Yeah, um, we have some like-minded people that like if if he's wearing that shirt or he he knows good. Not only does he know good music, 
But this is before there was a hot topic. So we know that he didn't just buy this off the rack. He went to that show, you right. know, or, or he sent away for it on mail order or the, the fan club or something along those lines. So that's, that was a telltale sign of like, you know, this was the, the visual business card, you know, yeah. either leather, leather jacket, the studs, or you're wearing, you know, a, a long sleeve shirt that, you know, very few people had uh, at that time. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. And like you say, a lot of effort went into it in those days. So that was the sign of some true devotion right there, which was also part of the appeal. Indeed. I got to ask you, because I never get to talk about this on the show and I don't know why, but you're actually going to have some input on this. I got to ask you about the Goo Goo Dolls because uh, I'm a fan and I've been a fan since my buddy turned me on to the Jed record, which of course was on Metal Blade Records. A lot of people may not know that the Goo Goo Dolls started off on Metal Blade Records and they were actually kind of a scrappy punk rock band before they became the band that we're all aware of today. Right. Um, so I wanted to ask you, what was your involvement with the Goo Goo Dolls during the Metal Blade years? Okay, uh, let me give you a little, little quick backstory on that and how it, we all led up to signing them. Metal Blade Records, we had a lot of uh, great bands on the label, you know, Fate's Warning, Armored Saint, Bitch, Lizzie Borden, uh, Hellstar, Hollow's Eve, on and on and on. Brian also had an offshoot label called Death Records. I was going to bring that up, yep. Yeah, Death Records was just sort of an imprint of cool bands that weren't necessarily rock or heavy metal, but they had, you know, some crossover appeal at, or they were just heavy corrosion of conformity. DLC, yeah. Yeah. DRI, um, Dr. No beyond possession, so on and so forth. So Love cryptic slaughter. Yeah. Cryptic slaughter. There was that, that was another band that comes to mind. So we got into a very interesting gray area where, uh, around 86, I think around 1986, I was actually in New York for the, I mentioned this earlier, the uh, New Music Seminar. Mm. I was in town for that, you know, attended some panels, checked out some bands in the New York area. And I attended, um, let's see, I think it was Guns N' Roses at the Ritz in New York City. Yes. And you know, I knew some people that were involved with Guns N' Roses. So what year? We, what year? I, I want to say 80, it's 86, 87. What's, okay. what's fuzzy is that that show, this will all tie in together, so bear with me. Yeah, that's okay. Someone will correct me if once this is posted and they'll say, hey, he's, he's not, he's, <laughs> he's, he can't possibly, how can he not know where he was at the show? It's like, I've gone to thousands of shows every year. Or they, you'll they, get it right and me and Dave will correct you and we'll be wrong later. Right. Yeah. It happens to us all the time. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's always someone just hovering over the, the, the edit button or something like that. So b bottom line is the Guns N' Roses show at the Ritz, which is, you can find it on YouTube. That's a legendary show, man. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So I think it was Great White, <clears throat> Great White opened up or Easy L. It was too nice. Anyway, I was at that show waiting in line, uh, ready to go to the show. I ran into the Google Dolls manager at the time. The guy's name was Artie Quitshaw. We had struck up a conversation, and then he gave me their, their uh, demo tape. Now, ironically, they actually had a prior release on a Mercenary Records, which was New York based. So they actually had a very early very first release out prior to that. Didn't really know anything about the band. 
the name was a little odd, but you know, he gave, he just gave me the demo tape. Fast forward to coming back to Los Angeles, going through the you know the big bag of demos that I that I, I obtained during my trip. Eventually checked it out, and I said, oh, "This is pretty good, kind of punk rockish, sort of like a Ramones meets the Replacements." And I said, "Okay, cool, I, I dig that stuff." So I said, like, "All right, this is kind of cool." So what ended up happening was, I I, I had a, I had an opportunity to say, you know what? Let me present this to Brian, see what he says. It's not rock, it's not metal, but I like it. Let's see what happens. So we got an opportunity to see them live. They had toured with Gangrene uh, yeah. at 86, 87 years. So we all got a chance to see them. I said, well, could we do something with them? He said, yeah, well, if we do, we can put them on the Death Records label. And I said, okay, let's try that. So that's kind of how all that connective tissue happened. Mike Faley, who was our uh, VP at the time, he's he's Buffalo-based, as is the Goo Goo Dolls. So he was the one uh, that flew out, did the whole contract signing, what have you. But there was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of moving parts to to actually sign them to to Metal Blade. But the 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 basic foundation of it was was just getting the demo tape, waiting in line to see Guns N' Roses in New York City, and you know, then the rest is history. Yeah. Now, grant now, granted, we it took a while for them to really take off. We had put out two or three records uh, with. Goo Goo Dolls before they really took off yeah. at Warner Brothers. Once the Warner Brothers distribution came into play in the late 80s, 90s, that's when things really kicked kicked into high gear. Right. But we at least had the opportunity to draw focus to Metal Blade Records and know that, hey, this metal label signed this band who's doing really, really well. And then just, just goes to show you that you just never know. Because that was not on anyone's radar at any time. There was no big... You know, there was no uh, big, uh, you know, all the labels didn't have their checkbooks out wanting to sign them. This was very, very early on in the, the, the mid 80s. They were just, and they were, you know, they were a very different band at the time, too. I mean, very, very different, very the different. Early, like I, the early the early recordings, Robbie did most of the lead vocals. And then when by the time they signed to Warner's and started to climb, Johnny was doing the majority of the vocals. So they went from sort of this ragged lead vocal to this more to the smoother vocal and incorporating more of the pop and less of the punk and that sort of thing. But for the record, my two favorite albums they ever did were is uh, hold me up and superstar car wash. Nice. Are nice. those both on metal blade? Hold me up. Yes. Superstar yeah. car wash. That might've been the transition record. That was a transition record. And if I'm not mistaken, that was the one that had the big hit single, uh, the song called name. Um, right. yeah, before I, before Iris was the following record, that's the one that blew up, but I think the song, the song name was on superstar car wash. And there was a couple other name was on there. name was on a boy named goo, which came oh. after. Yeah. See? Yeah. See? The, the memory's fuzzy. <laughs> it's perfectly fine. You've been to a million gigs and dealt with a million bands. I just wanted to pick your brain on the goo goo dolls because I'm a, I'm a fan. And, mm -hmm. um, a lot of people only know them for who they are since iris and mtv and that sort of thing but they do have some roots in in punk rock and we actually were signed to a label that once had lizzie borden and armored sane on the roster <laughs> well it's also uh will will has uh as well as metal blade has roots in uh in texas uh quite a bit 
Uh, oh, yeah. You were uh, either courted by or you reached out to Corpus Christi, Texas band Anchor Watt. Uh, yeah. Yes. You had something to do with them being on uh, on Metal Blade. Uh, mm -hmm. tell, tell us how that sort of connection was made and, um, yeah, whatever you recall about that. Well, like uh, Anchor Watt, like the thousands of other bands that would send us demo tapes uh, to the label, got it in the mail, loved it. Just straight up metallic punk, the vocals. It just sounded, they, they sounded like an angrier crumb suckers. Yeah. And, and, and these, and really metal guitars with solos and the whole thing. And it's like, yeah. this is amazing. So I, I definitely went, um, you know, full steam ahead and doing something with them. Uh, they, I put them on, uh, going back to the death record label, I put together uh, complete death. Uh, that was the compilation to sort of complement the metal massacres that sort of started the, the whole metal blade history with putting a band on the compilation, see, which acts, um, you know, pick up steam, get the most, yeah. Yeah, tr pick up traction and get yeah, talked so, about. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so Anchor Watt, huge, huge fan of theirs. And I made sure that uh, emotional blackmail uh, from one of their demos was on there. And then we eventually put out a couple of records by them. And, and unfortunately, it was two records. It was kind of uh, the two releases. And then they kind of went their separate ways in the late 90s. But nonetheless, when Obscenity becomes the norm, Awake, and the album Corpus Christi, which was completely different than the debut record. But uh, yeah. I, I, I love those guys. I know that some of them are still keeping the name alive. Uh, Danny Loner, of course, for those of you that don't know, he, he's going on to, yeah, of course, big uh, he's, he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with uh, Nine Inch Nails. So that's yeah. a nice little... Uh, I'm very happy for him. And, uh, you know, the rest of the guys, uh, you know, I'll, I'll see the social media and whatnot, but I am really appreciated uh, what Anchor Watt were doing and what they're doing for a uh, band from Corpus Christi because Metal Blade already had Juggernaut on the label yeah. uh, yep. when I came came aboard. Um, yeah. They were really cool, really, really technical. Um, I think we, I, we went after Devastation. I'm, I'm yep. pretty sure yep. that. I and think they course, ended up on they were they ended up on combat. Yeah, yeah. But and I know that Rodney, I know that Rodney had courted he just started right we had him on the show. It's been it's been a, a while ago, but mm -hmm. but it was the first time that I'd ever had a sit down with Rodney to say, So so tell so let me get this straight. You literally just got your record collection and looked at the fine print and wrote down the addresses of the labels and just licked stamps and sent tapes to all the he's like, Yep, that's exactly what I did. And I was like, Oh my God, you need a trophy. Because he <laughs> because he, he got a phone call or something from combat and he was like, What? You know. Mm -hmm. So hey, hey. I, keeping with the, the Texas metal blade theme, do you remember these guys? Let's see. Hold it up. Johnny Law. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I do remember Johnny Law. Yeah. Sure. I, um, God, let's see if I, I saw them. Do you have a connection to them by a chance, Metal Dave? <laughs> yeah. Eric Larson lives a, stone throw, a stone's throw from where I'm sitting right now. Good Lord. Yeah, we're still Law. friendly. We're still friendly with uh, some of the guys. Yeah. And my wife cuts uh, uh, air, uh, the bass, Ron McRae's hair, the bass mm -hmm. player. 
And uh, Brady, unfortunately, is no longer with us. He passed away about five years ago. But um, mm. but Johnny Law, they were a big draw here in Austin. And they were another band that was signed to Metal Blade, but didn't really fit the, mid- the Metal Blade mold, so to speak. It was kind of another one of those bands that maybe you and Brian were sort of experimenting with, trying to expand the audience a little bit. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, that, yeah, that, that just gets into an area of like, let's, you know, let's see what we can do, you know, start off with an EP or, or put out a full length album. But, you know, if, uh, you know, there's nothing beyond like no touring or whatever the case is, is there's always a myriad of reasons why there was never a follow up release or, sure. or a band doesn't get signed outright. Cause you know, we're not talking big, crazy budgets here. Yeah. Right. You know, and then there's other labels, there's other independent labels out there that, you know, can offer something comparable or more in, in a lot of instances where, you know. What would you say is your proudest accomplishment at Metal Blade? And then I want to kind of move on to some of the other aspects of your career. But Metal Blade, uh, I mean, wow, what a history, uh, a really rich history and responsible for so much of the metal that we all love. Um, especially in the early stages and you were there from the beginning. So what would you say is your proudest moment? And maybe, and also maybe not, I wouldn't say what, what's the quote unquote biggest failure, but maybe the biggest challenge, the biggest challenge that you couldn't overcome while you were there. Good question. Hmm. That was a good question. Well, I'll I'll start with, I'll start with the, the good and we'll go into the the murky (laughs) okay good again going back to being hired in first place it all starts with with brian slagle the staff that we had at the time you know john sutherland doing press bill matoyer doing uh the majority of the uh the production work mike faley coming in is um a more figurehead along with brian representing the label we're, we're talking to the big boys and we had, you know, a myriad of, you know, receptionists and what have you, the legal department, Bill Barrel. Uh, the interesting thing about having an opportunity to do radio retail promotions with every, every act on the label, you know, when I came aboard and then to do the metal massacres to sort of take off uh, from, uh, from metal massacre eight through 10, my, I guess my most proudest moment was being able to sign Sacred Reich. Mm, yeah. And, and that actually starts with another Jason, uh, yeah. Mr. Newstead, who, of course, was in Flotsam and Jetsam at the time. And he made sure to put a bug in my ear about uh, one of this up, this up and coming uh, Phoenix band. So it started there. And really, much like my energy and, and enthusiasm over Anchor Watt, it was intensified with Sacred Reich because I heard a lot of just great riffs uh, and seeing what they were all about. So I would definitely say Sacred Reich and they have, they in hell, they're going on tour now as we speak. And they, last year. Yeah. So they're one of the bands that on, the, on Metal Blade that are still out there, still, still thriving and still doing their thing. So I would definitely say um, guys in Sacred Reich. The, the murky part, would be this is completely a, a memory that didn't go as planned. Uh, it was a Nashville band called Intruder. Hmm. A, we put out about three releases with that band. Um, good solid metal band, but that was a time where 
they had uh, management that, you know, we, we think we butted heads over a lot of different things. There was a lot of communication issues, matters over artwork, uh, studio budgets and getting, you know, it was a lot of back and forth that resulted in um, a thing that could have gone better. And so that was probably one of those. This is probably 1989, probably one of the last things I was a part of. So that was that was one. In fact, you know, even though the band is no more currently, that was one of those situations where had things gone better, we'll never know. Um, yeah. Had they had they toured more, had there been more um, exposure, on and on and on. You know, put out some 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 decent records, but. I just remember just with the, the people involved with the band, uh, it was very, very difficult, you know, and I'm, and I'm very green. I'm still very green, even though I'm, you know, a couple of years, uh, working at, at metal blade. Uh, that was, that's one that, that comes to mind that could have gone better. And, yeah. uh, yeah. So I'll just leave what it about, at that. What about, um, bringing in a band or, you know, playing a demo for Brian or whatever the scenario scenario where you really wanted this band, but you knew it wasn't entirely up to you. Of course, you're just a, uh, you're, you're the rainmaker. You're just trying to, you're trying to make the connection and uh, make sure all the right boxes get checked before you turn around and tell this band, Nope, you guys didn't check all the boxes. How did that process work? What was your, pro- you and Brian's process, that assembly line of, and, and was, and was there anybody, any band that you really thought he was going to want to do something with and he didn't? Good question. It's going to be, I mean, okay. I mean, that we can talk about. Well, there's three and one is wow. massive. Now, this is my recollection because I know what tapes I got. Majority of them I still have. But he ultimately has the final say. Mm. He's the money guy in terms of what his interest is as far as, you know, listening to it and it's, you know, seeing that there's something there. Uh, oof. Well, here we go. One, one that comes to mind was a band called Mercenary out of the Bay Area. Okay. Great, solid riffs, the whole thing. That was more of, they wanted more than just an appearance on a, on a Metal Massacre. That that didn't pan out. Right. Um, then we will go with yourselves, Mr. McMaster. Watchtower. Wow. I know there was my uh, doing a full court press on trying to do at least a song on a Metal Massacre. And then, of course, putting out Energetic Disassembly. What's what's fuzzy is why that didn't happen. I know there was clearly interest on our behalf, but I don't know why we were not able to do some type of licensing P&D deal. Energetic disassembly was just at that time uh, ahead. It was ahead of its time as far as um, what you were doing all the and as it's as you were labeled on the album Vocal Insanity of Jason McMaster. Yeah. So that was that was one of those deals where we were, there's this band they already have a release out. Let's let's put this out. So I know I presented that to him. I don't know what happened there. And well, this, and a lot of those bands. I'm sorry to interrupt. A lot of the it, it could be it doesn't have to be Watchtower. There was a lot a lot of bands that uh, don't don't fit somewhere. 
don't fit. But but at the same time, and you'll agree because it's kind of part of of what you've been uh, revealing is that from Goo Goo Dolls to Anchor Watt to you know to crossover to having another imprint of the label for these things that don't go anywhere because it's not uh, you know Savage Grace with a metal chick right. on the front or bitch or you know there, there's a certain right. kind of metal that you guys were all about and that would were were way behind but a band that was just kind of odd i could see why it wouldn't fly yeah well past here's past the hey check this out you know right well here's here's the big one here's the the mount okay. the mount shasta of of bands that I don't know <laughs> where <good> reference, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I could name more mountains, but that was the first one that comes to no, mind. That's but good. This is one that I don't know where the disconnect was, but I have my thoughts on it. And that was Pantera. Wow. I, I got the power metal demo tape. Now keep in mind, everyone, everyone knows Pantera knows their history. Everything with Terry Blaze before uh, Phil came into the picture was a different style, completely yes. different style altogether. Power Metal was the first release to give you some inkling of the heaviness and where it potentially is going. Yes. So I still have the I still have the demo tape. I still have the bio, the whole thing, and that's one of those releases that um, we try to do something with it. And I don't know. That one slipped to the cracks. Now, my thought is, my theory is, there was the knowledge of how glammed out they were at that period of time. And we didn't really have a lot of those acts on the label. Outside of, you know, if you're going to go with looks, I'm really consider Lizzie Borden glam, but, you know, a band called Pandemonium sort of fell into that category and, it's, I'm talking in terms of the clothes, you know, and I'm not talking about the sure. ton of makeup and all that. Yeah. We had, you know, we didn't have really any glam acts on our label. I think later on, like to sort of piss on my own point, there was a band called Crank out of New Jersey. They were glammed up, yeah, but that that came later. But we didn't seek out those type of bands. It was more underground bands that offered yeah. some level of heaviness. The the label the the roster speaks for itself. You know, I'm not going to go oh, back yeah. and rewrite rewrite history, but Pantera was definitely one that slipped to the cracks because okay. that that came my way. I submitted it, and I don't know what happened there. That's just one of those. That one is the one that that's one of those ones that got away. Wow. So that's well, it's, I don't know. It's one of those things. Also, uh, if if I may intervene just for a second, it's not about me, but that. That place in between, I think I Am the Night was the name of the record, right? The third yeah. release, not the fourth. The fourth would have been Power Metal with Philip. So Correct. I think it's I Am the Night. And between Power Metal and I Am the Night is when uh, Mr. Abbott ring me up mm -hmm. and wanted me to audition. Really? I turned down. Yep. I turned that down. And then uh, uh, Vinny called me about a week later mm -hmm. and I turned and I turned it down. And then 
it it must have been I don't know five months later or something. I I see that they have Philip and they're making power metal and that came out, and that's when the shit started to go get for real. Yeah. Uh, but any but anyway, just interesting side notes. You know, I I turned down an audition. Not I wasn't. They weren't inviting me to be in the band. It was just an an interest, some interest. Yeah. So they had so something my, called projects in the jungle around before. Power. Well, it was yeah. It was uh. It's it's like metal magic or magic mm -hmm. metal. I always get that wrong. Metal that's, metal magic. That, that's metal the magic. first record. Then projects, and mm -hmm. then I am the night. Right. And and then Terry, they they lose Terry and they get mm -hmm. Philip for power metal. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, both yeah. of your stories are interesting. That's that. Well, the whole the whole cycle uh, of how, and even we were talking about clothes. I mean, you look at those early Pantera records, and they're full on clamming it up. Right. Yeah. Right. To know, that's, but everybody was. I mean, so many. No, not everybody. I'm, but yeah. I mean, even a heavy band like Lizzie Borden, you could even argue that Armored Saint, you know, had a look, and you know, okay, Oz yeah, when, Rocket, you know, when Will was yeah. was talking yeah. about the the prestige and the, and the, uh, you know, that, that the music and the, the album covers and the, and just the whole idea of metal blade was, uh, was a big influence on, on rock music, heavy music, metal music. And so when you look at the backs of those covers, you know, listening to the record, it might, it might sound like they at the time, maybe some of the heaviest shit out there, but you look at the pictures right, and they're where, you know, some of them are wearing scarves and shit. Right. You know, you know, I'm not going to call them a glam band because when I listen, they're not. But listen, in the 80s, you got to admit, I mean, I am guilty as sin. No, <laughs> no pun intended. I am guilty as sin uh, for wearing some of the silliest shit. I mean, I, I was like wacko from, from Raven as a front man. I was wearing like mm. shit pads and stupid <laughs> shit because I didn't know what to wear singing that kind of music. Yeah. Right. And it's so early. You're just following trends as to what you like, sure. what you're into. So yeah. it's no, it's really nobody's fault. The bad, the bad, clothes is not really anybody's fault we didn't we were all in this learning curve as a as a uh as a tribe you know of uh yeah. hard rock and heavy metal fans if i don't say so myself so so when when you are leaving metal blade and i don't want to open a sore or or have it be a sad story so let's keep it positive but when you are moving on if you don't, if there's no real reason why, or if you, you, you got a better gig or whatever it was, what, how'd you move over to work for a different label? No, it was, everything was amicable at that point. Yeah. Uh, the Capitol records at the time, they were expanding their A&R roster, kind of that, you know, out with the old regime in with the new. So there was uh, a, a, a looking uh, a hunt process for a and r reps so through some navigating negotiating putting in a good word for you know a few folks got an opportunity to join that a and r team uh at the beginning of uh, 1990. so that's really how it happened i had an opportunity to, to sort of move up and that's that's really that's really what i ended up doing now i inherited uh, some acts that were already on the label so that that made me all the more reasons to sort of champion 
what they're doing because I, I yeah. guarantee there were very few metalheads at the label. And I found out I was right. Um, I just got lucky with, with, with capital. We, you know, there was already, you know, the striper poison, you know, they were already in the label, but the heavy stuff, then you had Exodus, you had Megadeth. Um, so, and then I think great white was also in the label. Rigor mortis. Rigor yeah, mortis. Yeah. Rigor mortis. Yeah. They had already put out, um, a release by that time. So yeah. it's like, okay, let's see, let's see what's doing here with the different departments to see what they want to do with all these follow-up records and what they have been doing with, with all of these, these acts. So that was, uh, you know, an opportunity to, to try to shine and, you know, see, see what's doing. Unfortunately, it's a very tough road from going from independent to major. You have to be the cheerleader for anything that you try to sign, but it was day in, day out of, of clubs, going to concerts, going to, uh, you know, garage showcases, going through demo tapes. I had an assistant uh, helping with going through all those demo tapes. So completely different process at, at a major than it was at Metal Blade. But I appreciated the opportunity. And ironically, going back to Texas and going back to something that is a complete 180 of what I was looking at, there was one of those bands that I were very quirky that I enjoyed for what they were. And that led me to being able to sign the Butthole Surfers. I was going to bring them up. Yes. Yeah. So your so connection I, to Texas is still running deep here. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just like, what's this? And then as, and the funny thing is once, once I moved over to Capitol, then uh, eventually, uh, <laughs> which was crazy, then eventually Metal Blades signs the Galactic Cowboys king's x and it's like what's going on over here so, yeah <laughs> you're covering the base covering the bases with dallas and houston and san antonio and corpus christi kind of yeah right i'm just like we, we i think we left el paso out of the mix and uh laredo well, whether, like <laughs> whether whether it, whether it would be with metal blade or capital you were you have this sort of spider web going and i i think it's great Half a job yeah, all was from El Paso, so there you could check that box too. Ah, thank you, thank you. I knew there was, I knew there was one shot. The band is like, based out of Austin, but two of the guys moved here from El Paso, so yeah. okay, we'll, mm -hmm. we'll 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 honor that. And you think there's there's 50 states, yeah. and out of these 50 states, <laughs> you've got scenes in Florida, you got scenes in the tri-state area, you got scenes in the Northwest, the Midwest, West Coast. Why must I keep finding myself being drawn? to the, the, the lovely state of Texas. I don't know. You know what it is? I, I love it. It's just, yeah. it's, it's just funny. But yeah, so quick story with that. You have a guy coming over from a metal label working with, you know, the majority of the roster at Capitol Records, big major. You know, MC Hammer is a big act at the time. We have the Beastie Boys, Bonnie Raitt, uh, Eric Johnson. Those are some of the big acts at the time. Meanwhile, I'm trying to figure out how can I get another rock you know, ban on the label. And it was very tough. It was very tough for the, the three, three years I was there. And, uh, you know, it is, you know, it is what it is. But again, it was interesting that of all bands, I was able to sort of make way with a band that isn't metal whatsoever. And lo and behold, that that was my that was my my swan song there at the label so and we i just want to be a fly on the wall again about you like walking in with like some a demo or some songs or Oof. 
Gibby Haynes or Paul Leary into an office and going, these are the guys, hey, not, these are, hey, guys, uh, you know, the suits, if you will. Introducing, that sales yeah, this, you? this is Gibby and Paul from the Butthole Surfers. I hope you guys get along great, you know. Tell us about how that sort of happened and, and whatever demo or whatever they heard or uh, the legend of the Butthole Surfers out of San Antonio, Texas became to, to be on Capitol Sure, I'll give you the the beats as I recall it. So yeah, cool. anyone who, anyone who wants to, like I said, uh, a fly this this portion of the Talk Louder podcast is called a fly on the wall. Take it away. <laughs> <laughs> They're from Austin, aren't they? Butthole surfers? No, San Antonio. San Antonio. That's right. San, yeah, San Antonio. But eventually, I should know that, Dave. I should. San Antonio, don't you know? And then eventually, you know, Gibby, Paul, there. They wind up being Austin residents. Yeah, but, yeah. They, okay. A lot of San Antonio folk ended up moving up here. Son of some bitches. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, how does that sales pitch go? I mean, <laughs> that's got to be awkward. <laughs> to a point. To a point. I will. Was, now keep in mind they they weren't immediately in the mix. I I am newly hired. You know, nineteen ninety. But I'm going out to clubs constantly, left and right, and then trying to you know round up some things that could be of interest to the label but this is an era where you're looking for marketability are there songs there everything was about do you hear a single do you hear songs it's just like you know i'm just like look not every band is 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 fit out to have diane warren co-write uh your songs or or uh, desmond child uh you know put you in the studio and these big budgets but that was that era and i'm just trying to navigate around what my boss wanted what he's looking for but i'm still looking for rock acts i'm still trying to eventually try to broaden their horizons because he wasn't a big rock and roll guy so that was an uphill battle mm -hmm. so you later later on i'm there five six months i come across um Buttle surfers are on i think touch and go or rough trade i, mm -hmm. I think it maybe maybe the rough trade label you know, they'd had a lot of independent releases, you know, prior to 1990, but uh, the album P.O.D. Um, was on Rough Trade. They were looking for a licensing deal, another P&D deal. So that around that time, Capital was actively looking for our acts to, um, you know, to license. I came across their manager, Tom Bunch, at the time. And we, we may have met in Los Angeles, just uh, just happenstance, or we may have met at um, possibly South by Southwest, which obviously is a very ironic that another another music convention allows me to connect to yet another another cool band. So that started that cycle of mm, this could be an interesting one. It'll be hard sell with a name, but you know, let's give it a shot. Our president at the time, big, grateful, big deadhead, big deadhead. That was that was helpful in the context of he knew about the butthole surfers. Mm -hmm. So we were able to eventually get him to warm up to, hey, could we put them on the label? Could we sign them? What do you think about it? So we got to see them in concert a couple of times. He loved them. Uh, but we started getting these conversations about, you know, marketability and all that, but they were warming up to the idea of they'll do well. They've done well independently. 
So this could be something to pursue. Cult and following. Yes. Yeah. So that was all of that was in my my pitch, my bullet points when we would have our week, weekly uh, A&R marketing minutes. You know, every A&R rep would bring tapes. We play them. And this is cassettes. We're bringing cassettes, putting them in the TIAC or the, the Panasonic and press and play. And we'll play a song for about a minute or two and get everyone's feedback. Either they're nodding to it or like, eh, you know, just sort of you can just sort of get the vibe from there. So everyone's playing demo tapes of unsigned bands. So my whole pitch was, and there were other acts that I was looking at to, uh, you know, hopefully do a P&D deal. But with the Butthole Surfers, they came with a lot of notoriety already. So that helped in the sales pitch. Eventually, uh, my boss got to see and meet them, got a good feeling about them. So we're, we're getting all the pieces in play where from the president down to the VP, down to the different departments, hey, here's a band that we, we're really serious about uh, signing. What do you think? And let's get your feedback. Because it was important. Because this is like, this might be my first signing, possibly my only signing. And technically, it, it, it was. We'll get to Exodus a little later, because that was more of a, that was more of a, an act I already had familiar um, history with, but they were already on the label before I, before I got there. But with surfers, this was like the one. So I had to follow, I had to follow this project from start to finish as, as much as I could. And lo and behold, we were able to license PO'd. And then later on, uh, when I, after I had moved on, we had signed them to like a multi-album deal and Independent Worm Saloon, that was the one that really took off. That was the one that we had, uh, who was in my room last night. Then there was Gibby's uh, 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 collaboration with Ministry, with yeah. Jesus Built My Hot Built Jesus my Hot, Built Rod. My Hot Rod. Nonstop, constant airplay on MTV. So all of that helped. And then there was a, there was the... Uh, the Pepper. Yeah, the Pepper single. Yeah. Uh, then there was the tour with Stone Temple Pilots. So all, and they were on Lollapalooza. Lollapalooza sealed the deal. Once they were on that first Lollapalooza, that really sealed it as far as getting the label behind them and seeing what we can do with this very left of center band that I didn't expect um, to be able to to sign, and, and it will happen. So that's really uh, that's really the sort of the 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 origins as I. I recall it. Now, the interesting thing is there is going to be a Butthole Surfers documentary, and the folks doing this documentary did reach out to me. And these are things that I would have loved to have given them, but beyond um, an initial meeting about it, I don't know how much of my story, my history with them being signed to a major label will make it into that documentary. But it just goes to show you that timing is everything. and yeah. And while... I didn't get to um, enjoy the band's success after I moved on. I'm just happy that I was part of that footnote um, in their in their in their career. Completely valid and important, Will. I think so. Yeah, yeah. should have a little yeah. pride about yeah. that. And just, yeah. just for my own clarity, which which album were you affiliated with? The one that that with Capital that sort of got them started. It was the it was the first yeah it was the first two releases. Po'd. Okay. Don't ask. Don't ask me to spell that. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a P I O. You, you find it. But so it was P O'd, which was licensed to Capitol Records. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it was like the first thing that we licensed leading into the Lollapalooza uh, festival. But the band were in studio working on songs. I was in the process of getting producers lined up and seeing who you know who would be interested in uh, working with their new upcoming record that they were working on, which led into Independent Worm Saloon. Okay, that was re- yeah, that was released in 1993 even though they were still working on it in 92 i left at i left uh label again ironically new regime came in out with the old in with the new so around 93 you know i was out didn't have a contract it was just a, a an a and r rep at that time had i had a contract you know this that and the other would have could have should have yeah but i was at least instrumental in getting uh, uh, them lined up for that release. That was the one that took off uh, with a with a said uh, the single "Who Was in My Room Last Night" uh, right. with all the Robert E. Williams artwork on that mm-hmm. video, and uh, it was you know it was a great great album. And go figure that that was the one that went gold, produced by the one and only John Paul oh, Jones. Yes. And <laughs> you know uh, to this day, this was this was uh, <laughs> this was one thing that. Well, here's the door, kid. Hit the bricks. One thing I wish I did uh, get was a, a gold record. So I got one from the Goo Goo Dolls for the, the release uh, at the time of Boy Named Goo, but for the Buttle Surfers, um, never did. So uh, I think they, they might owe you one. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, we'll make some phone calls. Water under the bridge. <laughs> those, so things aren't, those, things aren't, those things aren't cheap, but, you know, it's a completely yeah. different regime now. Yeah. at Capitol Records, very few people that are still there, you know, 25 plus years later. But that's just one of those moments where at least I know I did something there. Granted, it wasn't a new and up and coming band, which is kind of the idea with A&R reps. You know, you you find the young, hungry bands that are out there that trying to do something and hopefully get them signed. But it just wasn't meant to be, even though we went after everyone under the sun. But it all came down to the, the nuts and bolts of songwriting, budgets, and what the the VP wants and doesn't want. And, you know, I'm sure Nirvana was in the mix. I'm sure Soundgarden was in the mix as far as signing and, and like, but, you know, it's on and on and on, just in all different types of music, not just rock and heavy metal, but with with so many different labels, with so many different reps, it, the, the, it, was a, it was a signing frenzy. You see all the different labels at all the different of showcases, you know, seeing what the latest band is, the, the latest uh, hype band that everyone's hearing about. And then it became like, okay, are we break out the checkbook, checkbooks for this act or what have you. So it would just be a continued cycle of, you know, not just Capital, you know, you had RCA, Atlantic, Electra, on and on and on. Every label had, you would fly in reps from the East Coast. And it was, it was a continued cycle of, of, of that. So, you know, a lot of healthy competition, but Ideally, um, you know, it was interesting time. How, well, uh, you know, how, go ahead, how, Dave. How outrageous band names are, are the norm these days, but the Butthole Surfers, when that name was being floated out there, I, wh- what was it like being in the room when you're trying to convince somebody to, to, that to was, believe in this band, promote this band? Were there ever any talks where it came so close to them having to change their name? Was the idea ever floated? Was there conflict in the boardroom over this name? Because it was a pretty outrageous name for the time. It still is, actually. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you, <laughs> yeah, well, it came in comparison to a lot of these death metal bands that I always say the the more 
the more unreadable the logo is, the heavier they must be. So <laughs> you would hope. Tree branch rock. But, yeah, uh, exactly. What you don't um, read death metal? What does this say? Oh, I can't read it. Well, you don't read you don't read death metal, right? So the no. the uh, the, the idea the, uh, the idea of um, the name time in time frame not so much the name I'm I'm going slight I'm I'm taking a left here uh okay. between like 88 89 to a but like you were talking about uh with the butthole surfers record and their popularity of the single pepper which I heard on the radio every day for like a year it seemed mm -hmm. like um which is quite different than it's like Gibby almost rapping or something, right? It's very strange and different. But the butthole servers is like, what kind of music is that? You see what I'm saying? It's not really one kind of thing throughout yeah. their entire career. Sure, it's probably punk, but alternative and rock, and it, it just goes and goes. It's it's in every direction. Um, I think that they were highly influential in the alternative music scene. And I think that there's a lot of, uh, um, a lot to be said. I mean, there's probably, you know, actors and rock stars that we adore who, you know, have this certain kind of way they do things. And you would never know by listening or by their presentation that they are the biggest butthole surfers fan. So, what I'm getting at is the change, the change from you're this, like, I mean, I know you as this metal guy you're, and you're working during a time, 89 to like 93. I, I knew you were gone by 93, but the point is the style that the butthole surfers had sort of like gra graduated to it mm. quite easily, actually, uh, mm. that was popular on alternative hard rock radio, loud rock radio playing Nirvana and Seattle music. Plus right. the whole surfers and and the Goo Goo Dolls and and yeah. all of that yeah. stuff, um, right. At, right? At the you know one right after the other, uh, Weezer whatever, right? So I didn't mention any metal there. No, not mm -hmm. really. I mean, loud rock, sure, but I, my question is, is like you're a metal guy and you were doing doing deals or attempting to, you know, you were. Uh, checking boxes you were trying to be this sort of conduit for for uh popular music and trying to make way for somebody who happened to be called the butthole surfers in this <laughs> sort of like a uh, wake of uh changing of the guard which is uh you know, we were all a part of it's like do I change my wardrobe? Do I start writing a different kind of rock and roll song so I can fit yeah. in, so I can eat? It's like, well, right. let's, let's say, fuck no, well, I'm going to mm -hmm. still keep wearing denim and leather. I'm going to, whatever my hair is doing, I don't care. I mean, as we age, we're not really in control of what our hair is doing. So <laughs> it doesn't yeah. really matter to me what's happening there. But you know what I'm talking about. The, the climate yeah. is changing. Right, right. I was... It seems that I know you keep saying I'm I'm looking for rock bands, but it seemed that it if it was going to have any uh, gains any uh, check any boxes, it would probably not be metal, right? I was forced to expand my horizons, pure and simple. Fine, but that's fine. Capital was and like most majors, they're they're labels that cater to almost every style. 
country and Western pop alternative, yeah. not just rock. That was the mentality that I definitely had to shift my focus and realize that you're, you know, to, to win over, you know, the bosses consider the acts that, you know, do have some single uh, capabilities or there, there is an image there that they can work with and not just focus on just a rock and metal bands, because look at the, you, you look at the rosters that were functional at that time. What did they do with those rock and metal acts? Well, everyone knows uh, MCA was not the greatest um, as an example. MCA was nicknamed the Music Cemetery of America because that was where a lot of those rock bands went to die. Not a lot of rock acts on that label did well. They were signed, but what did they ultimately do with them? So that was where I needed to really shift focus. And if I'm going to go out and see bands night after night after night, look at all types of bands. Yeah. Which, which, which leads into the surfers came in. Yeah. There was discussions about a name change. We already talked. I already talked that talked to the band about that. They weren't going to, they weren't going to uh, sign off on that. And I don't blame them, which they didn't, but there was a point where you get together with a promotion and marketing teams and say, look, even if we uh, initial at BH surfers at some point, you're going to have to understand that they have a following. If we do things the right way, the, the best of our abilities in all departments, uh, things will, it will pick up traction and it'll do well. The, they're, they're touring, the name's out there, but you have to sort of let that go and not think that um, there's going to be, you know, well, radio won't play it or, you know, magazines won't review it. There was a little of that. There was all, there was hesitancy but eventually we got over it. But the totality of everything that I was a part of and that I work with, not just the surfers, uh, the important thing was to broaden the horizons and not be so close-minded with the world I came from. And even though that was always my passion, it still is, you know, 40 years later, it still is. But meanwhile, there are all those, you know, and surfers were the alternative rock that was actually the 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 avenue in which uh, the, the the radio promotion and marketing teams went through. We went through active rock, uh, not active rock radio, but the the college the college circuits, all those the college radio, and then eventually you get into the K rocks of the world because that was that's where they needed a break big. They weren't going to be played on you know any rock stations you know that were strict like WSOU in New Jersey or KLOS and uh, you know, Los Angeles or uh, stations of that nature. But it just goes to show you, you have all the right pieces in play, uh, marketing team, radio promotion, all tied in, then you, you got a chance here. And just for just one little, one correction, I wanted to uh, let you know, Pepper was a huge hit uh, with uh, the surfers. But that actually came after Independent Worm Saloon. It was on yes. an album called Electric Ladyland in 1996. Oh, that was later. much. That was much later. That was later. Yeah. All right. Yeah, but, right. but nonetheless, they they were they were still they were still on the label, still on Capitol. Well, to I, to even break to even break and and have a journey on a major label, and the name of your band is the Butthole Surfers, and DJ Will had something to do with it. Pretty awesome. <laughs> I had to. <laughs> 
I want to talk a little bit about your time at KNAC. Um, mm -hmm. I used to write for uh, KNAC.com uh, yeah. for, for a few years. Um, I, my, my editor was Frank Meyer. Good old Frank. Yeah. yeah friend of yours, I'm sure. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, what you did at KNAC and how long you were there. Let's talk about that aspect of your career for a bit. Sure. Uh, after after capital and moving into a lot of internet ventures and being part of different companies that, you know, not music related, but that's kind of how career wise I went into, you know, whatever it took to sort of keep the lights on, pay the bills, things of that nature. I, I was approached by one of the co-owners of the 105.5 brand, uh, Rob Jones, mm -hmm. Rob Jones, who, uh, still is one of the co-owners of the brand. So he, along with Long Paul and Filthy Phil, those three gentlemen are collectively owned the KNAC brand. When KNAC went off the air, for those of you that aren't aware, uh, everyone knows the black and white logo, the black and white stickers are always in the, the videos and what have you, and everyone's wearing the shirts, KNAC, the pure rock. When three years later, uh, KNAC went off the air, in 1995, here in Los Angeles, based in Long Beach, California. In 1998, when um, internet was in its infancy in terms of websites and streaming, all of that became uh, something, as uh, far as the technology goes, something to pursue. How do we extend the brand um, via the internet? KNEC.com was born 1998. A couple of years after that, Rob had asked me if I wanted to do a shift there. He was familiar with me uh, working with uh, mainly work at Capital because he was the photographer. A little quick history. Rob Jones is the photographer of the Poison album cover. Look what the cat dragged in. Uh -huh. So that that is his. Yes. Yeah. So we can everyone can make fun of the Poison album cover and oh those guys look like women, but it doesn't matter. It sold millions. It did very well. It still continues to sell. But that's Rob was a photographer. You know, did that, not that, know that. Wow. Yeah. So that's the background there. So he knew me of that. He knew me of of shows and just just you know throughout the business over the years. Uh, so when he asked me that, I said sure. I I would uh, definitely consider that doing a a, a you know doing a show. It was very rough, very green, um, getting into the whole radio setting in terms of, and I didn't really have a name for it. I was just picking up shifts. We had a whole system, um, you know, all the, the hard drives, the, the streaming, all of that. It was cool. I got an opportunity to talk about what I'm playing, maybe give some anecdotal things about, you know, a band or a song. And so it was interesting to be asked to do shifts. And it was a labor of love. It was for the last 20 years until the stream, unfortunately, um, went away a few years ago. But I did um, put in 20 years at knec.com and loved every minute of it. We, we, we broadcasted out of uh, two locations. Uh, one was Manhattan Beach. Well, actually, one was in Santa Monica, then Manhattan Beach. And then finally, the physical brick and mortar studio, which was at Rally Studios across the street from Paramount uh, in Hollywood. That's where we did our show. And we had, you know, everyone under the sun that would come in there uh, as guests, whoever was you know, coming through town. So 
it functioned as a regular radio station. You know, we didn't have the FCC to worry about. This was internet broadcasting. This is definitely pre-satellite um, radio right. before, you know, Sirius XM came into play. I might be off by a couple of years, but for the most part, there was Z-Rock out of Dallas, Texas. Mm-hmm. They were also in the mix as well. Uh, Mad Max, Tracy, all of them, Tracy Barnes. He yep. was early on with streaming um, uh, hard rock radio. But with KNEC, for me, last 20 years has been um, been another good learning experience. And it's allowed me to continue uh, doing things, promoting rock and heavy metal where where I didn't have the the opportunities before. So, you know, and it's led to other gigs and what have you. But I, I enjoyed uh, working there and doing stuff. But now nowadays I'm with uh, Total Rock Radio uh, for the last six years, which they're based out of the U.K., and I still do a show um, which runs twice a week. So, yeah, so at least I'm still doing that. I still have a show, still have a presence in that respect. But, you know, the work schedule is a little nutty, but I, I'm always still a proponent of whatever I can do to promote this music I love so much. I'm all for, I'm all for it. Yeah, so yeah. The presence that that maybe KNAC helped you uh, create or, or uh Keep keep afloat from your time as just people knowing you from from your scene uh, and even tape trading and people oh you know everybody knows DJ Will everybody knows Will uh, kind of a thing and your your long run with uh, KNAC did that lead to your time working on that metal show? Yes, yes. Now I've known yeah I've known Eddie Trunk you know when since his days working at megaforce because that's that's basically how we met we met very early on god at johnny z and marcia and eddie at, at metal megaforce because they had a, they, they were on some panels at the cmj which i had spoken about early on uh in new york city so i had met eddie very 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 early on so he i'm trying to remember how all this panned out i think i went to a very very early taping i didn't like email or call him hey i want to be part of it but as it lent its as the show lent itself to being filmed in new york when they eventually uh brought it out to the west coast that's when i attended a, uh, some tapings and i got to meet uh, don and jim i had not met them before but with eddie i did know so that was sort of at least a little feather in my cap that oh maybe something there i don't know exactly how uh to fit it in I, I reached out to the producer um, at the time, and I had said, "Wow, I really like what you're doing. You're promoting these bands. Obviously, me and me and Eddie, we have a lot of similar tastes, and uh, you know, this is he started in radio as well. But a lot of what he was doing, um, I was doing out on the West Coast. But with the show, Jeff was the producer, and I said, "Hey, if you if you do the metal that metal show." Uh, for another season out here, I'd love to be involved in some capacity. But what I found was what they were doing at the taping was, and this is the angle here, the guests that they had on the show were always talking about their upcoming releases or a a song. uh, They would get into anecdotal stories about an album's history or a song that they wrote or a tour that took place. And there was no reference other than showing it on the, the TV, you know, put up the, the album cover or they'd flash you a picture of them in a, some compromising <laughs> look or something along those lines. But 
the in-studio crowd had an opportunity, unfortunately not to broadcast, they had an opportunity to hear the songs being discussed or a particular new single that is being promoted. And mm. that's, where I, that's where I came in on top of just playing a mixture of whoever the artists were at the time. I'd play a lot of their music for all the seated guests at the studio, but due to the broadcasting and the, the BMI ASCAP costs of the uh, copyright music, you, anyone who's watched the show knows that they would talk about the, the, the things that they've played on, but you would never hear those songs literally for broadcast, mainly because it was expensive as hell. You yeah, know, the publishing was, fees uh, paid for by a venue, if you will, uh, like a restaurant yeah. or whatever. If they're pumping any kind of music in there, they have they pay a quarterly fee. Oh yeah, I mean yeah, when that's when, a, when that means, yeah, that's yeah, this, why it's legitimate. Yeah, and I'll just give you just two quick examples. Uh, when Lars was on, and Kirk Hammett was on, and Brian Johnson was on. Well, on, I mean, you name the Twisted Sister, on and on and on. ACDC Metallica, two of the biggest bands on the planet. Could I play Back in Black? Could I play uh, any of that? No, but I could play it for the studio audience. The Metallica songs, of course, I have everything. But in terms of playing it to commercial, it, it, wasn't, a, it wasn't a thing. But I was still part of the team where not only did I DJ for um, the studio audience, I also had an opportunity to connect with uh, the whole stump the trunk segment. So a lot of people don't know this, where I would actually um, provide uh, a bunch of questions and I'd give, you know, I'd, I would fact check a lot of them because their whole department was, and if you, again, if anyone has watched the show, the whole stump the trunk segment, you know, it was just like trivia. Just all that. I'm like, oh, this, yeah. this, is the, this is the idiot savant coming out of me. Like, oh, this is right up my alley. So I would submit, okay, who are the guests this time? So I would just rattle off, Okay, well, here's, here's about a dozen or so questions and answers that will it make it, make it to the final uh, edit? I don't know, but I've already given my input. And, uh, you know, it was for me, and just being there, it was just added value. So I didn't necessarily have to be on screen. Every now and then, they'd cut to me for something, but it was not to be the, the fourth member on that metal show. But I was there for ooh, five, like five or six seasons for all the, the duration that they filmed in Los Angeles, except for the, the first season. So, so seven through 12 or something like that. And wow. uh, great experience, great experience to meet yeah. all these different uh, performers. A lot of the ones that I've looked up to that I know, and it's just great to just sort of, Hey, I get to play your music. And, you know, even though you're hearing it, the, the, the people watching it won't, but I'm still part of it. So it was cool. Yeah. And, uh, and the artists appreciated that. Cause you know, when we, we would go to commercial break, play something and they, they start looking around and they point up to the ceiling and like, oh, that's that's the song we were just talking about. Or that's the new single. Like I remember a band Kill Devil Kill, which featured yeah. um yeah, Rex. Yeah. Right. Rex they Brown. had per perfect example. They had a brand new album out at the time. No one's heard it. I reached out to management. I actually reached out to uh uh to Vinny. I said, and then Vinny and Rex I said, hey look, um you're going to be on the, you're going to be a guest on the show. You're going to talk about this new music. Um, connect me with the management and let me, let, let me assure them that, Hey, to promote your appearance on that metal show, if you allow me to play two or three songs from their new album, 
just know that it will not go to broadcast. No one will have access to us to these songs except me. And it'll just be for the taping. So again, it just goes to that added value that they're going to talk about this new music. And meanwhile, the people, uh, you know, like 50, 60 people in the stands, sure. but they will have a memory of, oh, we got to hear it first. We, we got to hear it before anyone else. And meanwhile, that was, that was part of the allure that these are things that I can do. Uh, not just play it, tons of Pantera or tons of, uh, you know, uh, Dio selections or uh, Dio era Black Sabbath songs. That was, that was part of it. But anything that the artists were there to talk about, promote a new book, whatever, coffee, whatever, I had the music. I had it locked and loaded. And that was, uh, you know, that was my con contribution uh, to that metal show. That's awesome. Yeah. I've got one last question for you. And sure. uh, I wanted to know, as a guy who's made a career out of having your ear to the ground and looking for new talent and discovering new talent, what's a band out there that we should all be paying attention to right now? Wow, good question. Very good question. Very open and a very, very good question. <laughs> wow. Wow, wow, wow. Hmm. See, there's there's a lot of them that are established. That are there's some that are up and coming. Ooh, that's a good one. That is a good one. Boy, that's a good one. Hmm. Might have to do an edit here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to leave in about two minutes, but I wanted to get one or two names out of you so our listeners would have something to you know explore based on the recommendation of DJ Will, whose track record is impeccable. Oh boy, the, the the pressure is on. See what he did there to you, Will? He kind of screwed the pooch on you there. Better, uh, that'll make, happen. better, better make it good. Well, I'll give you an established one first. Uh, hardcore superstar. Yeah. From Sweden. Um, love those guys. I'm going to see, I'll be seeing them on a Monsters of Rock cruise coming up uh, in a couple months, but uh, that's one that comes to mind. An another up and coming band, keep an eye out on. There's a band called Attack of the Rising, an incredible, uh, really strong metal band in the Los Angeles area. I would definitely give them five marks. Um, the singers from Brazil, really good, Deal-esque, uh, falsetto, nice. really, really good. So Attack of the Rising from Los Angeles, California. Uh, that is, yeah, that's a band I would definitely uh, recommend to keep an eye out on. Awesome. Hardcore Superstar and Attack of the Rising. Yeah. There's your homework, kids. There's your homework. Go explore Hardcore Superstar and Attack of the Rising. Yeah. And we've had a great time hanging with you today. You, you, you're just like one of these guys like Jason, where the brain is just this encyclopedia of metal knowledge. And, and I just love tapping into that sort of stuff. So thanks for sharing all your stories and your history and, uh, and your career, man. What a great career and a continued success with everything you do. We appreciate you being here. Thank you, Metal Dave, and thank you, McMaster, the pastor of disaster. So, <laughs> yeah, of course. So thank Absolutely. you, gentlemen, for and thank you both for what you, you're doing with uh, your, your podcast and having all these great guests giving their their input and talking about the world of music and what they do in the, the confines of uh, this world that we, we love so much. Well, we, we, we love it because we're nerds ourselves, if you couldn't already tell. So, yeah. You're always welcome to the party, man. On behalf Thank of my co-host, Chase McMaster, I'm Metal Dave Glessner, along with our co-host today, DJ Will. I'm going to call you a co-host because you are a DJ and you are a broadcaster, and he's holding up a Texas Longhorn shirt, ladies Look and gentlemen. Look out. 
Hook them horns, baby. Hook them horns. He's got clout. Yeah, his coffee yeah. mug was an Austin, Texas coffee mug, too. So. It sure is. Yeah. DJ Will on the Talk Louder podcast today. Thanks, Will. Thank you, gentlemen.